Welcome, everyone. This is Carlos Espinal. I have a friend of mine today, uh, Evan Nisselson. Evan and I met uh, almost uh, almost 10 years ago now, I guess, and maybe coming up to. And uh, it was during a mentoring session at Seed Camp where we met, and it really struck me he really had quite a grasp of some of the challenges of early stage startups. And that's because he himself has been a serial founder. And on top of that, he worked as a photo researcher and a photographer, professional photographer. And now he's running a fund called LDV Capital. And within that fund, he's focusing on visual technologies. And so we're very happy to have him here to chat about what that means and what all that sector is doing these days. Uh, welcome. Evan. Hey, Carlos. Honored to be here. Thanks for the invite. So let's get started by uh, perhaps walking through a little bit about what LDV is uh, and then maybe how you ended up creating it. Okay, that sounds great. Let me give you a little bit of background so you under the, understand the context of you know what we're doing today at LDV Capital. As you mentioned earlier, my background since a kid has been a photographer, a photo agent, a photo buyer, and then I landed in Silicon Valley in the mid-90s and became one of the first four photo editors on the on the internet when people really didn't know what the internet was on a commercial level. And since then, about 18 years building visual technology businesses. And visual technology defined is any technology that captures, analyzes, monetizes, filters, displays visual data, either for the consumer or the businesses. It could either be autonomous driving, biometrics, AR, VR, and the foundation across all of these types of businesses is the core of computer vision, machine learning, and AI. And we've been investing, uh, LDV Capital started about four and a half years ago. And uh, what I believe is that investors should invest in what they know. And I happily, uh, unfortunately, have to pass on all the companies. If I don't know the sector, then I then I don't, I can't add value. Yeah, that makes sense. And What's interesting is, you know, this rich history that you have 20 years in visual tech. Maybe you can walk us through some of the highlights of the entrepreneurial moments during that journey, uh, some of the successes and failures. And, and what are you looking back? What were the failure points? What, what drove those failures? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, when I landed in Silicon Valley, I worked at a company called At Home Network in the mid-90s, which was a broadband internet provider, which went public. And we actually, I went from photo editor to creating with a great team this uh, first broadband photo community in 97, before anybody thought they were going to capture digital images, share digital images, print digital images. And we did a deal with Intel, a $3 million joint venture. At Home Network went public, merged with Excite. I evolved to another startup trying to find ways of monetizing images, and then uh, went to build a photo community for Telecom Italia, and then a startup that I actually had an idea in the mid-90s where I felt every photographer and photo agent in the world was going to manage, market, and sell their digital images. And they once again thought I was crazy. And that company was called Digital Railroad. And we started around 2008, 2003, excuse me, and launched in 2004. And the goal was a SaaS platform and marketplace, which is about the same time Salesforce was starting. So that company did well for a while, got to about 3 million recurring revenue, 25 million and raised over five uh, fundraising rounds. But the challenge there was uh, the CapEx of that platform was tremendous. We were getting 10 to 20,000 50 meg files a day from thousands of photographers and agencies around the world pre-cloud computing. And when we were trying to raise in June of 08 with an investment banker, our Series C, about 20 companies were interested. And unfortunately, because of in, in June of in September of 08, when the economy crashed, uh, because of our mistakes, unfortunately, that company had to be liquidated. So for a long time, and that company was doing well. 
until it wasn't, which is some of the challenge that we deal with every single day in, is investing in early stage companies. So from the successes and failures, I try to help entrepreneurs avoid my mistakes and do some of the things I did well. Another interesting anecdote was in 2003, I wrote an article that said camera phones would replace point and shoot cameras. And so you see a trend of kind of being in the mix and being, uh, you know, having deep domain expertise in visual tech and kind of see where the trends are going. And I actually like when people think I'm crazy because then I think I'm on to something. But the question is really all about timing and who's going to execute. Yeah, fair enough. And I think I want to explore some of these other crazy ideas that you have. Um, I know we were chatting offline about some of the interesting angles you have. And let's get to those in due time. But maybe we can do is explore some of the lessons that you've learned from those failures and and how you transmit those to founders that you work with. So if you had to sort of highlight top three things that you think kill a company, especially in this space that you invest in, and the things that went wrong in, in the companies you worked in, what would you distill it down to? I think one, uh, especially during the digital railroad days, we were growing quite quickly. Um, but at, at a couple of times, we lost the focus on the core business fundamentals. And it's very easy for entrepreneurs to get distracted. I became distracted often. And every business in the early days should be extremely focused on succeeding at, you know, one to three goals. You can't do 100 goals well or 100 KPIs successfully. You really have to focus on a couple. And I think um, as we raised more money, we tried to do more and we lost the focus on those core uh, fundamentals. And I think that's one issue. A second issue that I learned from one of my mistakes during the Digital Railroad days was once we raised uh, you know, our Series A, the goal was, hey, I've been tired running it, bootstrapping the company for a couple of years with a great team. But the belief was, let's bring on a lot more C senior, very experienced people. And I think that's right. But when the company is not making a couple hundred thousand in revenue, but when they're making a lot more, and I should have uh, empowered more of the team that had been at the company for a while, and maybe have them push to take on more responsibilities, rather than hiring very senior people, or too many very senior people. So we hired about five, and maybe it's better to do one or two until there really is successful validation of the business growth. Those are two main issues. I think the third is just multitasking, which is a a challenge that I have, and I think all entrepreneurs have, is that we frequently are spending our days doing things that probably don't directly drive and empower the business and the team to succeed. And all those things should just not be done. And we should say no more often than yes. So if I look at some of the things that you might look for in founders you work with today, maybe one, you can give me sort of a general feel for what it is that you look for. But Looking back at these three different things that you take as takeaway lessons from your past failures, it seems like one of them is key around management and how to manage and grow local uh, staff or you know staff you have already versus hiring external staff to help supplement them. Walk us through uh, both how you select founders and also how you help them avoid the mistakes that you you did. So the, over the last four and a half years, being on the other side of the table as an investor, I've kind of learned and fine tuned what what kind of collaboration and founders I work best with. And those are very, very deep technical founders. For example, I'll give you two examples. One is Jan Eric from Mapillary, who is a deep techno computer vision expert, sold his last company to Apple and started uh, Mapillary with a couple other founders. And the reason why that's a, a great fit is because I'm tech savvy, but not deep technical like he is, and at, provide value add in strategy for product market fit, hiring, firing, 
and specifically fundraising. And we actually have a standing call every two weeks since I uh, invested and joined the board about three and a half years ago. And only recently we've extended that to three weeks. And sometimes we talk about very important issues. And if there's nothing happening, we just talk about, you know, some of the challenges in business and life. And, and having that interaction allows me sometimes to add insights to the CTO, the founder, or the, the CEO in ways that when they're focused in tunnel vision, uh, an outside regular call is very valuable. Another example is Matthew Zeeler from Clarify, who we invested in when it was just uh, two people on their team. And he's a very deep technical uh, PhD student from NYU who built an algorithm that uh, leverages computer vision and AI to automatically tag images and frames and video. And in the very early days, I mean, he's brilliant and smart and a hustler, but uh, we would talk frequently about, okay, it's time to hire somebody who's the right person, or it's time to unfortunately let somebody go. How do we deal with that? And what's the right way? Or in business development, there was a couple of big companies that wanted to uh, license the technology. And I actually said they didn't because they were just kind of either do a, a small aqua hire or waste his time. And those are the really key points, I think, in an early stage startup. If somebody's wasting an entrepreneur's time, back to that kind of focus, it's really important for external advisors or investors to try to help them avoid those mistakes until they build up a team around them that can do that on a daily basis. Yeah, that makes sense. And how do you train the early stage tech founders to be able to uh, sort of discern what is important to focus on and what not to focus on. Maybe train is not the right word. Maybe it's more about coaching, coaching them. And I've seen you do this. So I'm more curious as to how to, how you imagine it. If you were to give advice to other board members on how you coach very focused, uh, perhaps overly focused founders on, on might say product, uh, into other areas where they perhaps don't even see that they have a point of weakness. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I definitely, I think it's more of a, a coach or some people say I, I act kind of as their conciliary and whether or not it's in regular reviews of product or on board calls. You know, what I tell all these entrepreneurs is you have my cell phone. If you're ever in a meeting, it's an antidote. If you're ever in a meeting and you don't know the answer to the question, you know, go to the bathroom and give me a call and we can talk through it. And the key there is talk through these situations because every situation is different. And that kind of coaching, I don't have all the answers. But what frequently I do, let's say they're trying to figure out we have 20 features of a product uh, role that we want to do. And, and very simply, I would say, you know, listen, all those 20 features are those critically important to the success of the next product. I bet you there's only three. So it's not me choosing the three. It's more advising and coaching them to say, hey, you're absolutely right. Which ones are mission critical and our business will fail if we don't have those? And the other ones, you should just wait. You know, the anecdote is the early days of the iPhone. The iPhone came out and I was amazed. I got one of the early phones and I couldn't believe I couldn't. There was no feature to cut and paste text. And I thought, that's crazy. This is one of the simplest features seemingly to do. But there was obviously many more challenges that they were trying to get right. And the, the next iteration, the next software uh, deployment had that cut and paste. But that's a great example. You don't have to deliver everything. Plus, you don't have to hire everybody immediately. You just need to hire the right people. And I think to your point of that coaching, whether or not it's in directly with an entrepreneur after we invest, or even before I invest, because I want to get to know how that entrepreneur is going to interact with their team and others, such as investors like myself. So one of the interesting things about your background, which perhaps I'll embarrass you a little bit here, uh, you're an amazing skier and and also uh, amazing chef. And one of the things that comes from is from the time that you've spent here in Europe, but now you're based in New York. And that's giving you a unique perspective on where technology 
is coming from, where the development centers are around the world for, for visual technology companies, and what the nuances are between Europe and the U.S. Maybe you can comment on all those. Sure. So um, in several of my early, early companies that I built, I had customers around the world, and I got to know kind of the dynamics of different cultures and businesses. And for LDV, it's been a focus to invest about a third of the fund in European companies. And European companies, uh, more often in the northern of Europe, that have the business have to have business viability in the states and frequently for example like mapillary the goal is how do i find the diamonds in the rough help them grow their businesses and then at the right time help them grow an office and raise capital in the united states and it's really about finding those those special cases or special uh, entrepreneurs and i think there's many areas across europe that has that i'm not an investor that says i can only invest in one area where i live and locally when I have to, you know, be able to go and meet with them. Interesting enough, uh, one of the first investments in New York was Clarify, and you know, and I was excited because then I could spend more time theoretically going to meet. But you know, Matt and I talk more often than meeting. We talk by a phone or chat or email, and that's his preferred choice. So I believe that as long as you build up a relationship with any of these entrepreneurs, whether or not a lot of companies I'm looking at in London and in, in other parts of Europe. And that's, I think, a value proposition because there is an unbelievable pool of brilliant technical people in Europe. There might be less to date uh, of the serial hustler DNA entrepreneurs, but I think that's growing over time. And there's a great value proposition of finding unique companies. And we've been doing that for about four and a half years as an investor. And interesting enough, recently, some of the larger funds in the United States have been making earlier investments in Europe. And I believe validating, you know, that thesis. Yeah. And some of that are companies that are, you know, maybe non-standard or perhaps not necessarily the kind of thing that you would expect to take off. And some of them will succeed and some of them will fail. But this brings me back to some of that crazy ideas that you, that you mentioned that you had. And I'm going to start with one of the three that you had given me. And one of them is the internet of eyes will be bigger than internet of things. Maybe you can walk us through what you have in mind when you say the Internet of Eyes will be bigger than IoT. Um, I think it's a very exciting opportunity that's coming. And, you know, it, it, the, the foundation of that thesis is if you think about the core thesis of, of LDV is to invest in visual technology companies. Why is that huge and why is that going to be pervasive? It's because 90% of our personal and business lives is analyzing visual data as humans and artificial intelligence and sensors everywhere, which is, you know, the kind of the foundation of Internet of Things is really going to have to rely on the same balance or the same percentage, I believe, of at least 90 percent of all of uh, AI is going to be analyzing some or all visual data. And so if you think of things from biometrics in the car, which are probably going to track your eyes and your face to see if you're falling asleep, or maybe you've had too much alcohol, and very soon it's going to be able to track whether or not your heart rate is too high to be driving in that Uber car and, and, and potentially at risk for having an accident. That would be great for a customer in the back to have an app that says, hey, uh, I don't want to get in this car because that driver is not safe. Or... In commercial buildings, sensors that are around the building can track uh, movement, can track heat, and manage electricity and, and costs in a very interesting way. Um, so I think sensors are going to be everywhere, and they're going to be analyzing and hopefully improving our lives. There's another example, our mirror in the house. 
It's a dumb object that is very important to most people in society every morning, multiple times a day. But that mirror will eventually be able to track me visually and see whether or not I'm almost going to get sick or I have an irregular heartbeat or my complexion is off or I need more vitamin C. And it should be a way that, you know, uh, some people fear Big Brother, but as long as this, these, these data points and these signals add value, empower businesses, and hopefully uh, improve our lives. I think that's going to be very exciting. How much do you think has to be visual? How much of it can can it just be through other sensors? I mean, you see what Amazon's trying to do now with with Alexa and and how we communicate with that. How much of it does have to end up being a visual technology or or some element of perhaps other types of sensors? Um, I think it's a great question. So I think many of these business like Alexa, it's a great example of purely voice right now. But I bet you soon they're going to add cameras to it. So I think of visual data, the signals from visual data is just a segment of the data signals that something like Alexa or uh, self-driving cars or uh, your Nest uh, product at home will start evolving. I mean, Nest bought, uh, you know, Dropcam, the video company. That's a perfect example of that's the next signal or extension of that that product. So I think they're all very critical. And most initiatives won't be solely analyzing visual data. But it's a, a critical, almost like our five senses. It's a critical sensor and signal to our lives. And computers gaining artificial intelligence is really just evolving, you know, humanity. So it makes it at least makes perfect sense to me. That makes sense. So if we move on to the next one you had mentioned, uh, and I love this one in particular, the satellite selfie. What did you? What? What? What's your thesis behind the the concept of a satellite selfie? So, you know, satellite imaging uh, is growing and growing. There's many companies now working on tracking agriculture, health of agriculture from satellites. Um, they can track the importing and exporting of cars in ports, or they can track the, the level of oil in oil reserve containers as the ceiling goes up and down. And what's fascinating is that these are tracking as they go around the world. They're also tracking security. The military has unbelievable accuracy and detail. Some say all the way down to being able to read the words on a piece of paper in your hand. Okay, that's security, but let's flip it around. A lot of security or government initiatives like the internet or like uh, GPS and others evolve into the commercial world. And the, the fact of actually there have been some group selfies already done from satellites. They all go out to the parking lot. They know the time the satellite's going to pass and they click a button or at least know that it's going to capture and it already exists. So the fact that satellite selfies will become a reality. I mean, I can't stand these selfie sticks you got to carry around. Wouldn't it be great if you could just look at your phone, tap a button, look to the east and smile? Because there's going to be enough satellites. Sure, there's a little bit of a delay. There's some latency. There are issues, but that's going to be fixed. It's just a matter of time. It's really like Moore's law on the chip manufacturing. It's going to be the same with satellite imaging. And so I definitely see us having that in our lifetime. And I've also validated that by talking to people that work at some of these satellite companies, and they nod their head and smile. Um, and so once again, if 99% of the people think I'm crazy, but 1%, hey, you might be onto something. And I, so we started talking about that a couple of years ago. I think it's very exciting because I don't want to carry my camera around. I'm still a photographer. And I think what's exciting is that there are images that we capture or we make, which are called decisive moments. Carlos, as you know, you're also a great photographer and love photography. There are the decisive moments that we frame an image, and that's a, a story that then we post on Instagram or somewhere else and we share. Because the goal of creating is to either share or store a memory. 
but there's going to be all of these hands-free cameras, whether or not you're wearing them, whether or not they're embedded in fabric, they're in your house, they're at, you know, for example, I rented a car recently at, at a company in, in San Francisco, and I no longer had to check where the scratches were. I just drove out and photographed the car, and then it's going to be satellite selfies, which is very exciting. So I think the idea of it with the satellite selfie makes it easy to comprehend, but I want to explore that a little bit more in terms of the way that we think about hosting infrastructure. We think about other kinds of infrastructure where we no longer own it. It's infrastructure that we use on demand. And I want to, I want to sort of brainstorm with you a little bit about what that means to have distributed uh, imagery that is on demand and treated as, you know, like an Uber in a way where you could have literally um, if you're proposing to somebody, this is very consumer facing. So you're proposing to somebody and you want to make sure that every CCTV image that was available of that moment, you had access to so that you could store it. And that was going to cost you, let's say a hundred dollars. And that would just cover any camera, satellite, anything that was around. It would source it for that geo location area that you, you were in. But not, now let's play with that idea a little further and think what, what would, sort of an enterprise use case be of distributed imagery of all sorts and how would that look like? What would, what ideas do you have there and what that would look like from a commercial point of view? Um, I mean, I think that's a good question. I mean, a commercial point of view, I would look towards uh, autonomous driving. So one of the biggest challenges autonomous driving has is acquiring uh, enough data to help the cars in every situation. Right now, we're focusing on highways with autopilots. There are several initiatives that are focusing on cities, which is much harder because there's more variables. But the more data, the more pictures and composites of images that can be gathered from every camera in real time, because things happen, you know, a pothole might be in the street, but wasn't there two weeks ago when other cars passed by and had captured those images. So the real time of capturing that, or what if there was a tourist that took a picture across that street, captured that pothole before a car was coming, and there was a way for that uh, manufacturer to have access to that image. I mean, obviously the challenge of silos of data images and where all these are, and businesses might not want to share them. Yeah. But the potential technically is there. And the questions obviously are in, in how to, to get the right data at the right time, which is the same with computer vision and AI. 99% of all this data is noise. 1% is high quality signal. Yeah, but no, that's a very interesting use case. It's, you know, like on-demand insurance claims, you know, it, it, would, it would definitely solve a lot of problems. It would be worth a lot of money to a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, also security. I mean, that security is a, you know, something that we love and hate because we don't want Big Brother, but then we want to be secure. And, and some say privacy is dead. But the more and more data that's out there, even on you know, mixing the business use cases of if I go through Grand Central Station and then I go through JFK, there's probably two or three photographs that somebody, something or someone captured of me that I would love to have. It knows what I look like. Why can't I have those images to improve my archive of photographic memories? Because that's actually human nature most often remembers their past via photographs. There's this great photograph of me on a bed playing with Snoopy in a telephone. I think I was less than one years old. I have no real memory of that moment, but I have a photographic memory because it happened and it was captured. Yeah, and I, and I think that whilst that is very interesting and I think it'll have value to the individuals, I think what's really interesting about what you were saying earlier with some of the commercial stuff is how it could fundamentally change how we live our lives and the cost basis for some of our things, you know, like insurance companies' cost basis for ascertaining fake claims is going to drop by a lot if they can have immediate distributed imagery 
about the event. Um, you know, you see in London these signs that say, was anybody here and saw this accident? You know, that would go away. So this it's a very interesting idea, this satellite selfie idea. All right, so the next one. You mentioned a retina cam. And yeah. I think this is from like one extreme to the other. Walk us through what the retina cam is about. So, uh, you know, many years ago, I think this, I was at a conference and I don't know if it was 2004, 2005, 2006. And, and they were saying, well, you know, what's going to happen in the future? And that was my number out of five things. I can't wait for my retina cam which is basically a contact lens that uh, I started saying, we're going to have the ability to capture images and or video via, you know, a contact lens. So that even takes from the perspective of the human rather than a satellite photographing us. This is us photographing the world. And what's fascinating over the last 15 or so years is I believe uh, Google's working on a contact lens for diabetes, which also might capture visual data. And when I say visual data, think about visual data not as an Instagram photo, but as pixels that can discern information to help us. And over time, maybe photographs. And then also recently, Samsung has patented their version of a contact, uh, contact lens that potentially will capture video. And then obviously in Black Mirror, uh, which is one of my favorite shows, there is one of the uh, shows that is actually the ability to record and replay back what you see from your contact lens. Um, and, and, and what's interesting is some of these fa fantasy ideas and stories, many of them become a reality. The question is when and, and how and who's gonna execute it. And that's one of the exciting things I love about being an investor is thinking about those trends and, and understanding what I believe the trends are so that when opportunities and entrepreneurs say, hey, it's time, it's a question about does that entrepreneur have the deep domain expertise in the background? Can they be a leader with the right DNA to build a team and build a business? And then if those two are checkboxes, the third is, is it the right time? And that's one of the hardest things about building a new business and when to invest in a new business. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But what do you think things like the Snapchat lenses and some of these cool things that are coming out right now? are going to fit into that. I mean, is, is the contact lens kind of maybe misleading? You know how you look back in 50 years ago and a lot of the science fiction literature had flying cars and we've kind of skipped that. Do you think that it's going to be more, more wet wear where you'll have a connection straight into your, your uh, visual cortex and then it'll be rendering something from there? Or do you think that we will just get comfortable with the idea of having Snapchat type lenses that will replace the need for some fancy contact lenses and we just get used to the idea that we all have luxotica branded things with uh with with the images on it yeah i i, I think that's a great question i you know i'm not sure i have the answer to that but the you know i i believe in wearable cameras and that's a wearable camera it's in a, it's in glasses and it's actually smarter than i believe other cameras because the most important vantage point is where our head is looking at least from our daily interactions uh, we're not talking about the hands-free cameras but I think that that's a great toy that's going to help capture uh, experiences and, and instantly share them. And I think there'll be more and more. We invested in a company uh, called Apex Labs, which is an OS platform for smart glasses, but it's for business to businesses. And that's a interesting example because that's a core need. Over time, those businesses, assembly lines, manufacturing, healthcare, there's a huge value proposition of having a headset. Um, and I think the headset, whether or not it's for businesses or for consumers like the Snapchat glasses, they're just a step towards having that retina cam. I hope the retina cam happens in our lifetime. It might not. 
But all of these different types of wearable cameras for businesses and for personal lives is really back again to the core foundation of, of visually communicating because a majority, 90% of our lives is about visually communicating and the businesses are about how we can make that more efficient, more valuable, and hopefully make more people smile. But how does it, how does it really manifest itself in terms of people getting comfortable with it? You know, I, I don't want to ask you to throw any one of your companies under the bus here, but I want to understand what has been your learnings from some of those investments that have a physical device where it's clear to the other person that they're being photographed or they're being videoed and whether that's going to fundamentally change social interactions and having this retina cam or having a Snapchat type lens is going to radically change how we interact. And as a consequence, it'll fail the way that, you know, Google Glass arguably did other than for aesthetic reasons. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we, you know, it's about human nature adoption. Um, and I think the use case for Google Glass wasn't really clear. It was kind of novelty. Um, Narrative is a wearable camera company, um, which uh, has some followers that are very strong and others that are not comfortable with it. But let's, the way I usually try to think about these things are looking at the past. So when in the, in the, in the, was it the mid nineties, I started traveling around the United States photographing and I had an early Nokia phone, you know, not the sat phone. So I wasn't part of that generation, but the next level phones, people said, why are you crazy? You don't have a home landline, which I haven't had since I haven't had a home landline since probably 1992, and, and, and people thought I was crazy. But over time now, you know, hardly anybody has a landline, and everybody's on their phones. Or in the mid-90s when I was working in Silicon Valley, and my parents said, Evan, why are you sitting in front of your computer all day long? I mean, I know you're working, but, it, you know, that, that can't be a good life. It can't be a good, you know, way to live and spend all your time, you know, 12 hours a day in front of the computer. And now they're using the computer, and actually my father knows more you know, emoticons and more short abbreviations than I know from his interaction um, on the computer. And so I think human nature evolves, and some of these products, will, most will fail, and then all of a sudden one will succeed, and, and we'll be like, well, that was obvious. It's just about timing. And I also think, to your point earlier about these cameras everywhere, we already have cameras everywhere. There are already cameras. We can't access them. But there are already cameras everywhere. That concept of is privacy dead? And that's, uh, you know, a big issue. It doesn't concern me um, because I hope to benefit. Hopefully we're safer now because of that. Hopefully we'll be able to leverage some of those cameras and that visual data to improve people's health. Excellent. Well, it's great to hear how you're mapping some of these ideas into the kinds of companies you're selecting. And it's great to also hear some of the companies you have invested in and how you leverage your background. We always like to wrap things up by asking some sort of out of the blue questions. And the first one is, what's something you used to strongly believe that you now think you're fundamentally misguided about? Um, I think the uh, one of the big things is uh, that I struggle with, and I mentioned it earlier, is just timing of innovation and how long it really takes. And I always struggle with this um, as far as what is the right time to invest in something or to build a company. And I, my misguided kind of historically is I always think it's going to happen faster. And I think over time, I've gotten better at assuming it's not. It's that unfortunate comment of it'll take twice as long and twice as much money, um, which is usually the, the cliche. But I think that is one of the most important aspects that I'm trying to improve. Okay. How about what's one bad habit you're trying to get rid of? Yeah, the bad habit that I'm trying to get rid of these days is multitasking too much. And it's actually you know, trying to do myself what I, I try to help others uh, avoid and focus. And I'm very good. I've become very good at multitasking, almost on steroids. 
And I think the, the most important thing is trying to get rid of 80% of what I'm doing and only focusing on the most important 20%. And, and that changes on a week to week basis. So basically I've started uh, weekly uh, prioritization lists that then I say, no, 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 no. These are the three that I have to do this week and try to avoid everything else which then also gives me more time to be more strategic. It's hard to implement, but that's something that I'm, I'm really trying to improve. So it's been a while since I've asked this question, but one of the things that we like to do is ask somebody to shamelessly plug something that they're really passionate about and also something that they would like to have other people be part of. Maybe you can share some of, uh, of the initiatives that you're working on, Evan. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity. And one of the key parts of LDV Capital is our LDV platform. And that is basically, I'm a single GP, and the goal is how can we add more value to the fund, the portfolio, and our ecosystem? And we've, four years ago, started the first uh, kind of summit that focuses on visual technologies. And the most recent one was uh, in May of this year, which is about 500 people, 80 speakers, 40 sessions, and two competitions. And it's all about bringing together the smartest people building companies in visual tech, um, investors that want to invest in those companies. This past year, we had Bijan from Spark and Josh, Josh from Greylock and Howard Morgan from First Round. And every year, we're trying to get more. And we also have a community dinner series in New York City. We're always trying to meet more people. And one of the key things, back to what I said earlier in the interview, is I don't have all the answers. And what I love is trying to gather people smarter than me that can help each other succeed and hopefully help uh, the whole ecosystem grow. Excellent. Well, Evan, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure having you and uh, you. Hearing, hearing your thoughts. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure as well. Have a fantastic day. Thank you. Bye. Bye.